You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials or even starting to appear on shelves or by prescription or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Future Tech Health podcast, and I have, uh, I'm here with Kenneth M. Weiss. He's the Evan Pugh Professor of Anthropology and Genetics and Science at Pennsylvania State University, and we're going to be talking about the role of genetics and biological variation and its evolution. Um, Dr. Weiss has worked on uh, the problem of diabetes susceptibility in American Indians and the effect of genetic variation on cardiovascular disease, amongst many other things. So. Uh, Dr. Weiss, thanks for coming. How are you doing? I'm doing fine. It's my pleasure to be here, and I hope I can answer any questions credibly. Yeah. I'm okay. Well, I was going to start off with the. I was going to start off with asking you, you know, what's the origin of life, but maybe we'll leave a, uh, you know, a real easy question for later on. Just kidding, but. Uh, <laughs> yeah, well, the, the origin of life was the right chemicals in the right place. Mm. And if you so want to know, what, the, what, call somebody else. Yeah. <laughs> so tell me about your uh, your current work. What what are you working on right now? And uh, we'll we'll dive into that. You want me to say right now? Yeah. Well, um, yeah, no, no, no. what's your most what's your most current work? Yeah. Well, my most current work is based on computer simulation, uh, and the idea is to understand how what we'll call complex traits like blood pressure, intelligence, uh, diabetes, those kinds of traits, how they're caused in relation to genes, how they're caused in relation to environments, and how we're supposed to know that because it's an important aspect of trying to understand problems that we face, health problems, for example. And the question is whether or not the current approaches, the genetics and genomics and other things of that ilk are relevant or where they're going or what have they shown us and and so on. Hmm. So have you been able to figure out how you think some of these complex uh, characteristics, you know, where they've come from, let's say intelligence or like you said, blood pressure? Well, in a joking way, I'll say if I knew that, I wouldn't be talking to you. I'd be in Oslo getting a Nobel Prize. Um, mm. What I think I, I do know, and we know, and the reason I, quote, know anything, quote, is because of all the work that people have done, which is that for most of these traits, uh, the genetic aspects are very complex. They involve many different regions of our genome, many different, I can, I'll say genes, but it's not just protein coding elements, but many different regions of our genomes, as well as environments. Those differ from person to person. The causal elements, of, say, of a given IQ or a given athletic ability or a given case of diabetes, 
they, the cause in terms of genes varies from person to person. And that's very important because we're being promised, quote, precision genomic medicine. The idea being that if I look at DNA sequence of somebody, I can predict with precision, meaning increasing accuracy, what their future health will be. And I think that's a mis mistaken and misleading, and I think culpably misleading, because I think we know things are much more complex than that. But that's yeah, why let's, let's start from that end. Why do you think that uh, just knowing someone's, you know, the sequence of the base pairs of their DNA would tell you everything about them? Why do people think that? And what's what's wrong with that assumption? I think that much of what we do in science and in our culture generally is based on our history. We It's a, the long shadow of history. So going back to Gregor Mendel in the middle of the 19th century, 1800s, uh, he showed th through experiments on pea plants in Europe that given what we now call genes were responsible for given traits that he chose to study, whether the peas were green or yellow, for example. And it was very simple. There was a green state, what we now say a gene, a variant of a gene that caused the peas to be green, but there was also a yellow state and each individual plant would either have, uh, because plants have two copies of these things, they would either have two copies of the green or two copies of the yellow or one green, one yellow. And that would very reliably predict the, tr the color of the peas or how tall the pea plants were. He studied different traits. And that led to people in human genetics saying, wait, we, wait, we see similar patterns like this in families where there's a disease and it's being transmitted to, from parents to children in a similar way to what plants do from parent plant to the offspring plant. This was around 1900. And so the idea that traits could be gen genetic or Mendelian as we call them, named after Gregor Mendel who did the pea plant work, this took hold in many different traits, especially important pediatric diseases that were present at birth, not just diseases, but it was most important for disease. These were inherited in a way very similar to what Mendel had shown in pea plants. And in the first half of the 19th century, of the, eight, of the 20th century, first half of the last century, and even beyond the first half, many traits were studied by pediatricians and geneticists that were inherited in this simple way. And that was kind of addictive because we thought, well, maybe everything's inherited in this way. And some people would say, well, but we know that things like pea plants or maybe yes or no on some disease is a discrete trait, yes or no. But what about traits like blood pressure, which don't just come in two states? Well, going back to some early work with plant genetics in the 1900s, we thought, well, maybe not just one of these things, these so-called genes, is responsible, but maybe lots of them, maybe hundreds are responsible. And when people did experiments in agriculture and animal breeding and so on, and even with patterns of, of traits comparing parents and their children and other relatives, it looked like that's what was going on. Many different regions of the genome, so-called, our, our inheritance, were responsible. At the time, nobody could identify those variants. So it was just a, a kind of correlation. You're like your parents for skin color or blood pressure for many different genetic reasons. We don't know how to find those regions, but at least it accounts for the pattern in family. You want me to keep going? Well, I guess you know, also if you add in, um, I mean, I don't know if this is the case, you tell me, but um, a, a certain sequence of base pairs in our DNA, okay. Okay, can so that only be read in one way, or can you have, you know, like if I imagine the uh, the stylus of a record player, can I put the needle down in another spot and read over part of that sequence and overlap onto another sequence and then code for a okay. different protein? You know, okay. is, a, is a unique stretch of DNA only readable in one way? Because if it's not, that would make it even more complicated, and there'd be no okay. such thing as a gene, essentially. Uh, 
well, holy cow, you've asked a semester's worth of questions. Let me let me just back, <laughs> let me go back to Mendelian traits, which were first in plants, and then uh, biomedical people, doctors, discovered that many inherited diseases behaved the same way, as if one region of the genome, called a gene, at the time we didn't know what that was, uh, was responsible, and it it was variable. So we each have two copies. Everybody has two copies, and if we have two, let's call it healthy copies, nobody knew what that meant, but we had two healthy copies, we were fine. And for some diseases, if we had two unhealthy copies, we had a disease. For other diseases, if we had one of each, just even one unhealthy copy, we could get the, the trait or disease, eye color, you know, very simple things uh, like cystic fibrosis, simple yes, no, more or less yes, no diseases. Breeders of plants and animals and people who study human families knew very well through experimental work in the 1900s, early 1900s, that this kind of inheritance might explain quantitative traits like how tall you are, how rapidly a corn plant will grow, how your blood pressure is. And the reason that they could be, those traits could be explained by the same kind of inheritance as these simple yes-no traits would be, the idea was, that if lots and lots, say hundreds of different genes, different parts of our inheritance, our genome, varied and were responsible for affecting the trait, then the height, how tall you are, or how IQ was, or how your blood pressure was, would be the result of the combination at these many different genes of the variant that you happen to inherit. And since each person transmits half of that to their children, there would be a correlation in the trait between parents and children. So the idea was that these traits are called polygenic. They involve many different genes. This was the early 1900s, but nobody knew how to identify the genes. It just was consistent with the idea that tens, hundreds of these individual Mendelian-like two-state genes working together were responsible for the variation of the trait, which didn't just come in yes-no states, but came just like height, stature, uh, blood pressure. It was a continuous distribution. And that was the explanation for why there was this correlation among relatives. But at the time, we didn't, we, we had no idea to identify what, this, what it meant to say that this was due to a lot of genes. Then about, I don't know how many decades ago now, 30 or more de- years ago, DNA sequencing became more and more easy and possible. So we could start looking in really in detail at what this genetic causation really was. And DNA sequencing of whole genomes, all of our sets of chromosomes became possible in crude ways 20 years ago and become more and more routine now. So you can look across okay. the whole genome 3.1 billion of these nucleotides and try to find sequences whose variation among individuals was responsible for variation in a trait. And that's called gene mapping. And that's when people are talking about the genomics of a blood pressure, they're talking about what they find when they sequence the DNA of a bunch of people and relate particular and find particular areas whose variation is related to the trait. Yeah, and we okay. found some of that and I, and I understand that. Um, yeah. So what's the next level well, of sophistication we found some. on that? Pardon? Oh, so what would be the next level of sophistication from that approach? Well, okay. So the idea was that um, in the old days, 100 years ago, we had single gene traits and they had, let's say, two states. You either had cystic fibrosis or you didn't. Eventually, the gene that was responsible was found. Some of the variation in that gene was identified that could be attributed to people with this disease. And that was fine. And that fueled the engine of saying, well, what about other traits that seem to go in families like blood pressure, intelligence, 
uh, obesity, those kinds of things. So, okay, so they're due to tens, hundreds, hundreds of different parts of the genome, each varying, and each person has a particular set of those variants, and that is responsible for his or her trait. So now let's look across the genome, sequence the whole thing, 3.1 billion units called nucleotides, and try to find areas whose variation is associated with the trait variation in people. And that's what people have been finding, and that's gene mapping is finding this kind of thing. What that means is, let's just make up a hypothetical example. It's a real trait, let's say blood pressure, but what I'm gonna say about it is hypothetical. People have looked at the genetics, at the DNA sequences of people and related those to their blood pressure and found areas in the DNA that are associated with variation in blood pressure, and let's call them blood pressure genes. And what they've found in the last 10, maybe 15 years or so, is that many different states, parts of the genome, their variation affects blood pressure. This is what was known 100 years ago, but nobody could identify the regions. So now let's say we have 100 different regions of the genome, places along the DNA, where the nucleotide sequence, the, the actual DNA sequence varies, and where that variation, if you look at a bunch of people, that variation is associated with, or helps to cause, let's say, blood pressure, or how tall you are, things like that, or risk of heart disease. That's called gene mapping. So we found, so here's the issue. We found this gene mapping. We've been promised in the public domain many times by NIH that this is going to be precision genomic medicine. Now, if you think about precision measurement of the speed of light or precision measurement of the frequency of some sound in a piece of music, what that means is that as we get better and better instrumentation, there is a true value that we are approaching. And uh, as our instrumentation gets better, our estimate of the truth gets closer and closer to that truth. That's what's being promised with precision genomic medicine. The problem is that we don't have a single value that we're trying to estimate with better and better accuracy. Everybody is different. Your genome is different from my genome. No two people with the same blood pressure have that same blood pressure for the same genetic reason. So to say that we can, and we're not, we don't know of all the variation in the world. So we can say, you, I looked at your DNA, I looked at your blood pressure, I can see the association, then I can look at mine and try to find regions uh, in our DNA that are similar and therefore may be contributing to our similar blood pressure. But when there are hundreds of these and no two people have the same set, and the, what's even known from, the, from attempts to find them is only based on the samples that were looked at, not on everybody in the species, then the promise that we're going to be able to use DNA sequence to predict disease precisely is a false promise, and it's a knowably false promise. And I could add well, there other that, that, I don't even know if there's a definition of a gene. I wanted to ask you about that. Then you you think about gene expression and epigenetics, and you know even if you were able to identify, okay, this sequence of base pairs seems to uh, code for this uniquely and only. And if we see a change in it, that means that you know this disorder will happen. Yep. That doesn't take into account, you know, the the person, what they eat, their life, and again, their epigenetic hey, wait, wait, changes, wait, wait. probably even Don't more. Don't start talking about environment yet. We're we're promising things based on genomes only. But of course, you're right. Of course, you're right. Much of what we're talking about has to do with environments. Now, it, just as you said, what you eat, where you live, the climate, you know, your occupation, your education, and there's something much more profound about this. Suppose that if we measured all of your environment and we measured your genome entirely, suppose that that would lead us to predict things perfectly. Is that even plausible? Well, let's add two things. 
One, every time you're made of billions or maybe trillions of cells, a lot of them are involved in things that affect your blood pressure. They divide during your life as they're replaced. Each time a cell divides, new mutations occur. Those are not being measured in the way by the blood sample that is used to measure, quote, your genome. So those are unseen. So we're trying to make a prediction based on something based on a blood sample or a cheek swab of your, quote, DNAs if every cell has the same DNA sequence. But all your cells do not have the same DNA sequence. Mutations are arising. So you have cells that are somewhat different uh, because of that genetically. And we don't, we're not identifying that. We know that happens. Secondly, we know that blood pressure, to say, to take an example, is affected by what you eat and your lifestyle, right? Nobody, nobody doubts that. But I will give you a trillion dollars if you can predict your future exposure to these kinds of facts. There's no way to predict future exposure facts that we know are relevant in major ways. And the people probably well, we don't even have to uh, to go there yet. I mean, like you just said, you know, if you do a cheek swab, the uh, the underlying DNA may be different in each cell in our body. But then, what about the microbiome? <laughs> well, okay, genomes and influences us. Absolutely, microbiome. For people who don't know what that is, it refers to things like bacteria and viruses that are in or on your body, and they affect you. And they're different for everybody because we're all exposed to different things. And each of those like a given type of bacteria in your gut, they all have their own genetic variation. And we're not typing that. We're just taking sort of stereotypical bacterial sequences as if that represents all of the cells in the body. The thing that I get energized about is the promise that is naive about this, that, that, that is basically knowably naive by the people making the promise of, quote, precision genomic medicine, because we know that you can't have that kind of precision. If you say precision estimate of the speed of light, or precision estimate of some characteristic of iron atoms, I'll say, fine, get a better microscope, get a better telescope. You'll, you'll, you'll uh, understand you know, the arrangement of the stars better. Fine, because they have the kinds of properties that precision measurement is appropriate for. But biology is not that way. But we, but we arrived by a process of evolution, which is based on local ver genetic variation, not universal genetic variation, and uh, it's not appropriate to, to say that by sequencing some genomes, we're going to predict things with precision in, that, in the sense that that word is being used. It's a marketing ploy to get big grants, in my opinion. And I'm a cynic about this, I admit. But it's huge grants that lock up huge amounts of money for long-term open-ended time periods when it focused for what is proclaimed, quote, proudly by, by NIH as hypothesis-free research. When there are a lot of people in this world who have disorders that might be understood better if they were studied by focused funding of focused research. So I get very upset about the big genomics business when we know that it's simplistic. Partly we know it because of all the work in that area that's been done over the last 25 years. But I can say that I predicted this situation 20 years ago. It was predictable if you, for someone working in genetics. Uh, and I don't want to get into all the details of the politics of this, but it's a lot of it has to do with the funding politics and with the idea that we can always keep gathering more and more data with the promise that we'll get something understood with precision, quote, because how can you ever be well, held what, accountable? What, what Go ahead. Well, what should, what should be the outlook then? I mean, should we just quail in the face of this complexity or you know, how should we approach uh, well, the first answer disease, for instance? The first answer is we have to wait and stimulate some genius to come along and tell us the answer. The second answer is that we have many focal 
problems, diseases that we know are serious, that we know ought to be understood, at least in part genetically. Um, and that's where the investment should be. It's not going to be easy, but hypothesis-driven research. Also, if we had a national health care system, then we would have national health care records. And this kind of work could be done on that without special huge grants that are too large and too, too long-term to stop. Uh, but we also know that many, many important diseases for which we're being made all these promises, let's say things related to blood pressure, obesity, bad, bad lifestyles, and so on, those things could hugely be ameliorated by lifestyle changes without any fancy scientific research. And what would be left would be those unlucky people who have one of these diseases for, for something that really is genetic. And then we can do some really genetic research to try to understand it. But right now, we are being promised that everything is basically genetic when we know it's just not so. And it's tying up huge amounts of resources in very long-term grants, too big to stop. And that, to me, diverts resources from things that could be studied with real science, with focused, uh, hypothesis-based uh, research. I'm a very- It also creates a, it creates a dogma where, you know, natural interventions are laughed at or scorned or not even allowed, you know, yep. not paid for by healthcare, any of that stuff. Well, you said it, not me, but I would, I would echo that. I think, I think there is a place for open-ended kind of science projects. And there was a place to sequence the human genome to find out what it was. There's been a place for looking at variation in the genome and how that relates to various traits that are not simple like the ones we could do 100 years ago. But we've done that now. We've been doing it for almost 20 years. It was predictable, and I can say that truthfully because I predicted it in print, predictable what we're seeing now, more or less. And another thing, so it's time to, to divert the resources back towards more focused research. Uh, instead of the, the Genome Institute a few years ago proclaimed that they do not do hypothesis-driven research. It was just open-ended data collection. Well, fine, that has its place. But now what we know is even forgetting the fact that environments which are important are not predictable generally, and even forgetting the fact that mutations in your body cells during your life are not being measured by this DNA sequencing work, even forgetting all of that, what we have found from this work is that most of these traits, let's take blood pressure, they're due to variation, um, the, vari the same blood pressure in different people will be due to variation in, in terms of the genetic aspects in many different places in the genome. And your blood pressure might be the same as mine, but for very different genetic reasons. Okay, this is a major fact of how life works, and I can account for it. Uh, it, it makes sense evolutionarily. There are a lot of ways to be successful, and that way a single mutation doesn't kill you. So we evolved all this redundancy. It's a protection. It's a protection for the early parts of life, for health, and so on. And later in life, when we're all living to older ages now, well, that protection becomes a liability because there's lots of ways to, for it to go wrong. And we know that duplication, making this kind of redundancy, is a fundamental aspect of how genes, genomes evolved. So now that uh, this massive DNA sequencing on hundreds of thousands of people has been done, what we see is this huge reservoir of redundancy. And we can explain it, as I tried to do just now, in terms of evolutionary in evolutionary terms. But it makes prediction very difficult because it's not like one gene with two states and whichever state you have lets us predict your, your trait. It just isn't that way anymore. And I haven't mentioned the environment in the last speech. Um, how much of a redundancy is there? I know everything is different, but you know, in general, there are two of everything, no, three no, backups no. of everything. I mean, what's the variation tens, we see? Tens, sometimes hundreds. 
And there's various kinds of redundancy. There's redundancy in, in multiple different genes contributing to the trait. There's redundancy in the way those genes are used, which is also encoded in DNA, which contribute to the trait. So it's very complex, the redundancy. But we know, we know it's general nature. But when we know that, let's make up a number, 100 different genes with all sorts of variation among individuals affect your blood pressure, then we should stop saying we're going to predict your blood pressure with precision because no two people will have the same set of these genes. And not to mention right, yeah. other things. Yeah, and what's but, the chance of one, one molecule, one medicine overcoming uh, the redundancy of, I don't know, 100 different genes and not affecting the, the organism in adverse ways and trying to overcome them all? Well, that the chances are very good in this sense, which is that the, the, the drug or whatever is to treat the symptom and it doesn't worry about the cause. And that's classical medicine. You don't have to do all this DNA sequencing for that. Or as many people in many, many dissenters like me in this area would say, we know of, of environmental problems that are resp- diet, overeating, under-exercise, bad, you know, this and that, that are responsible for many, if not the vast majority of the kinds of diseases that are being studied in this way. And we know that if we really want to get down to the ones that are genetic, we have to have better lifestyles. And that's where maybe the investment of money should be, research money, to how to help have people improve their lifestyle. If you eat a crappy lifestyle, well, go ahead. Yeah, another, another problem I just realized is, you know, Focusing on genes is also another problem because now they're trying to do things like gene knockouts, use CRISPR-Cas9 to, you know, again, to knock out genes. But if things are redundant, interrelated, who knows what kind of effects that'll have? And that probably can't be undone. Well, even if it didn't have bad effects, it's going to be minimal in terms of its positive effects because you have so many genes contributing to a trait. I would say about CRISPR and these other technologies, which are supposed to replace damaged genes, that there are many diseases, we've known of them for 100 years, more than 100 years, many diseases that seem to be generally caused by variation in one gene or two genes, let's say, or something like that. Those ones, they're serious diseases. The reason we know about them in this way usually is that they're pediatric. They show up at birth or early in life. They really are genetic. They really are inborn. Okay, let's use CRISPR, these technologies, to fix those genes if we can if it's not too late when someone's born, or if we can do it earlier somehow, that would be a marvelous use of technology in an appropriate way. But to say that we're going to use that to fix most cases of blood pressure is fiction. Now, if people, let's say people ate a more responsible diet and had more exercise and all those kinds of things, there will be a few people, unlucky people, who have congenital hypertension, high blood pressure, very high, not because of their lifestyle. Okay, if we if people are living a better lifestyle, these people would be easier to identify and the genes would be much easier to find because it wouldn't be masked by lifestyle effects. And then we use CRISPR to try to fix it. Although maybe by the time they're adult, maybe CRISPR wouldn't work. I, I don't do that kind of work. So that's not for me to say. But at least that would be the idea to say that we're going to study 250,000 people, look at all their DNA sequences, measure their blood pressure and find the hundreds of places where different people vary in different ways, um, and that only includes part of what of their of their DNA sequence uh, uh, traits. It's just a convenient fiction for maintaining big grants and not having to focus and have come up with some real answers. And the big grants, the big projects, have shown exactly what we've been talking about. There are a hundred different parts of your genome that affect your blood pressure. Then we have to take a different approach than thinking that we're going to just target a gene with some therapy. Now, is agriculture. 
Is there even such? Is there even something that is a gene, or is that a misnomer? Because I've been hearing well, that a lot. Well, the word gene is that's there is a big debate. There is a small debate among some important people, some thoughtful people, about whether we misused the word gene in the first place. And I think that gets into details about the structure of DNA sequences, the processing of, of protein codes, and all those sorts of things. But the basic bottom line is that the concept of a gene is one that was coined essentially by Gregor Mendel, although he didn't use the word. Um, and it was fine at the time when these were thought to be individual, independent, causative agents. Now we know way, way more, and it's, it's, not a, it's a misleading term. Um, and in fact, we, we teach it in old Mendelian ways in, you know, I don't know, high school, certainly maybe earlier, because that's what the teachers know, instead of modernizing. And when I've talked to some teachers about this, they say, well, you can't, you can't do that because the, the students wouldn't understand it. And I say, baloney, they're kids. They don't know the old way. Teach them a new way. Teach it to them in simple terms that they can handle, sure. But don't teach them something old and let them wait till college or medical school or never to really learn that that's, that that's an old-fashioned view. So, I mean, in summary, though, do you believe <clears throat> there are such things as genes or is, it, uh, is there a better way to express it? Well, let me ask you this. Are there such things as cars? Well, yes, but then what's the car? It's a similar kind of thing. It's, there are functional, functionally distinct regions in your DNA. Uh, some of them are codes for protein, and we call them genes traditionally. But there are a lot of variation in how even the same one of these so-called genes will actually work. And that has to do with various details that I don't want to go into. So the term is obsolete. Uh, I don't know of a, of a better term. Uh, People have tried to coin terms. You can, we can call them genome regions or DNA sequence regions or something. But we just, we're not good at coming to grips with complexity. We want things to be simple and understandable where we can give them a word, a term, and you know, make little diagrams of how they work and so on. And that was fine for 100 years, but it's uh, the last century. But it's not fine anymore. We know better. And it may not be comfortable to know that, that we are constructed not by individual genes like bees on a string, but by a much more complex uh, functional element in the nucleus of our cells, which varies among the different cells and so on. And we just haven't crystallized a better view. We're forcing the older view, in my opinion, onto this, and it's not fitting very well. And yet, of course, we, professors have to have grants. They need their salaries on the grants. They have to publish papers. So they can't just stop and say, let's think about this doggone thing for a while. You're not your careerism in, in biomedical sciences, for example, depends on getting often getting your salary from grants. You can't just stop and say we got to think about this. It's part of the structure of the system. I would say that our science explanations are the paint on a building, and the building is the funding structure, the political structure, the careerism, and all that practical things that faculty members, for example, have to go through. And if you think about it that way, then that's what needs to be fixed. And the paint on the outside will be will be improved as we learn more. But we've got to have a chance to learn more without this constant rush for big projects that keep paying us our salaries and this and that. Makes sense. But so how does this inform your work? What what are you working on right now? And, and um, you know, well, your understanding is different from a lot of people's. So what, you know, how has that changed what you're doing? Well, I'll say two things. First, I've been saying these things. I'm retired. So first, but I'm still active in some ways. But at first, I'll say that I've been saying this before I retired when I was doing lab work on traits. I was looking at dental structures to understand how teeth were formed. But anyway, I've been saying this and doing, and doing computer simulations of the 
process to try to understand it. Um, what I think now is there's got to be either a major discovery come along that we could never predict in any particular way, or we should reform the funding system so people can don't have to have projects that just go on forever um, and they can grind out safe papers describing their results rather than being forced to think hard. If you force people to think hard uh, and judge them by the quality of their thinking, not just the number of papers they make, sooner or later, somebody hopefully will have some inspiration. Uh, but you can't order it up just by pouring money onto the problem. Uh, and then what that does is it grab people grab up the money because they have to build their careers, un understandably. And then the money doesn't go to things that are more focused and therefore might actually have specific solutions. There's no specific genetic solution to blood pressure. It's not that kind of a... It, there's no specific solution to the tides by measuring waves. Waves are part of a tidal phenomenon. The tide is a different thing from its individual waves. But what we're doing is enumerating waves and trying to predict the tide, if I can use imagery. Okay. So what, I mean, it's, I know it's like fighting the system, essentially, is what you're saying. So what, uh, okay. what so can people do? Well, what I'm doing is I'm doing computer simulation with some colleagues in Finland and elsewhere and in New York to try to show the points that I've been talking about. And because I'm retired and because I'm not running a lab anymore, I write about these things. And also, I have to say, I had tenure. I had a salary. I'm retired. I'm on a pension. I do not need to be funded to do research. And therefore, I do not need to make up reasons why what I'm doing is important. And I can study what I want to study. And I can be skeptical. And I can say what I find. I know people who know what I say is more or less, and I'm not the only one, more or less correct, but they don't want to say it out loud and they don't like me saying it out loud because, as I've been told, it threatens the funding system. You go to Congress and you say, you give us this huge amount of money, we'll do this big data. Big data is now a catchphrase. We'll do this big data, I'll computerize this, that, and the other genomics and metabolomics and all that. And it's essentially promising miracles instead of saying, these are doggone hard problems. We got to slow down and think about them. We need a national healthcare database with DNA, fine, because a lot of things really are genetic. But what we really need is for the faculty members at universities to be able to think without having to be, quote, productive in the sense of grinding out paper. There are precedents, Xerox, IBM, and, uh, and the Polaroid, uh, and others that I'm forgetting, uh, set aside research units. They put some scientists in there. They gave them a pot of coffee, and they locked the door. And they just said, do stuff. And every now and then, they'd unlock the door and go in and say, what'd you find? And some of the major discoveries of the 20th century came from this kind of research that was not under the pressure of having to score count all the time. But that's what we have now in yeah, but there, there could be a happy medium, you know, like goal-directed research, but uh, allowing for, you know, sure. surprises and thoughts that are contrary to what the, the dogma is. You know? The problem, yes, yes. And it's a social, sociological and economic problem. Universities need the overhead on the grants. Faculty need their salaries and so on. Innovative research is high-risk research. And I've hardly ever seen a what I would call a truly innovative, even small project be funded because you can always pick pick the reviewers of a grant application can always pick at it and say, oh, you didn't do this, you didn't do this, you didn't do this. The thing about innovation is it's going to be surprises. You got to let people just poke around and you can't judge them, faculty members, professors, on how many papers they publish and how many grants they bring in. It's just not a what, way. What about private run. institutions? I mean, do you see that they're falling prey or victim to the same dogmatism I, uh, or are they, they free to figure out what they want to figure out? Well, I think they're free to, to, to try to do things, but they also invest huge amounts of money in research and they're not going to do something that's too risky. And I think they're having a lot of the same experience. They're spending a lot of money on 
on projects that don't go anywhere. Uh, but at the same time, maybe if you work for uh, one of these drug companies, and I don't, maybe they say, well, yes, we're going to try a lot of things that don't go anywhere because that's what you have to do if you want to find something. You can't make it predictable when you don't know what the heck you're trying to find. But when you institutionalize it and you have universities and other and professors and things like that dependent on a steady flow of funds, they're going to do what they have to do to grind out, quote, results. It's what we have. That's what we see. That's what's happening. Every now and then we'll get lucky and somebody will really find something, but you have to wade through to see it. And the Einsteins of this world, I don't know how, they, how they'll function because they, people are co-opted by the, quote, system of needing to get big funding. You, what you want is individual people, clever people, puttering around without a, a bottom line to satisfy. And uh, every now and then it'll be rare, of course, but every now and then somebody will really find something. And that's what we value. Those are how the discoveries were made, often by accident. So maybe I'm a dreamer. So what, have you, what have you decided you're going to do about this? Are you just going to well, because do I'm your research in the way you want it to be done? Or do you want to uh, go out there and beat the drum and try to change things? Well, I'm retired, so I'm not running a lab anymore. But what I do is exactly that. I'm beating the drum. That's what I'm doing right now. I'm trying to beat the drum and point this out and get enough people convinced that what we're doing is a waste of funds and a waste of effort and a waste of talent, actually, and that we ought to reform. But reform is like is very difficult. It's like trying to turn a big tanker ship, you know, oil tanker around. It's slow and it's hard. There's too many vested interests who don't like change because we built it that we built those those vested interests. We've been doing it since World War II with uh, some of the big projects at that time. It's similar similar happening. Some similar things are happening, in my opinion, at NASA with regard to space research and elsewhere. It's how we do things these days right now. And I think it needs reform. But I'm free to say that because I'm retired and I have a pension. I don't have to get my salary on grants. But I'm using that that benefit to try to speak out. And if somebody listens, well, hopefully that'll be good. Well, in addition to speaking out, why not pick a particular thing that you're interested in and go at the problem or at least set out a problem description the way you want it set out with all the possible uh, well, elements okay. that could be involved in that problem? Two things. I'm working with colleagues, uh, one in New York and one in Finland, on computer simulations to try to make these points and maybe see if there's some way to understand them. But when you say, if you don't like what's going on, instead of complaining about it, why don't you invent some new miracle? Well, life doesn't work that way. Uh, My hope is that by speaking, and again, I'm retired, so I don't run my own lab. But even so, my my feeling is if if people speak out and more and more people see what the problem is, and more and more people speak out, then you provoke others to think about, well, why are these people complaining so much? Are they just complaining because they didn't get grants? Are they just complaining? And maybe here and there, somewhere, some Einstein or Darwin or somebody says, ah, here's the problem. And then we all say, well, why the heck didn't we see that before? And that's the way history of science has worked since the beginning of science in, a, in that, what I would say is a typical yeah. way. That's a typical way. You can't order up. Yeah, fair enough. Can't order up revolutionary discoveries, or we'd have them all the time. They have to happen, but you have to have you can't you can't plant corn without the right soil. So we got to have the right soil where people aren't dependent on conventional, safe, big, long-term grants for their very livelihoods. You got to let people explore, and yes, most of them won't get anything. That's the price. It's a cheap price compared to having a huge amount of money poured into something that isn't going very far. I think. Do you, do you perceive things are getting more narrow, more focused, more dogmatic, or are they going in the right direction? They're not going in the right direction, in my opinion, although 
the seed the seeds for that might be in the findings or lack of findings of the huge big data effort. Right now, the play it safe, uh, hypothesis-free big data long-term project ethos or way of doing things is prevailing because university faculty members need their salaries, often on grants. They need their projects. The university administrators need the money that comes in on grants. All the pressures are play it safe. And we've got to change that, in my opinion. Okay. Well, very good. Um, so what's the best way for folks to uh, get in touch and, uh, you know, ask you questions or, you know, well, anybody wants with you? To me, they can email me. Uh, uh, that's fine. Uh, and I always respond. I guess, I guess the last question is, um, yeah, what, what's your email if you would, if you want to post okay. it or a website yeah, people can go to? Your choice. I, what do you, how do I, I'll say it. You want me to say it or what do you want me to do? Yeah, I can, simple enough. Yeah. What's, what's yeah. a easy way for them to get to in contact with you? Okay. It's Kenneth Weiss, K-E-N-N-E-T-H-W-E-I-S-S, no spaces, at gmail.com. I'm happy to answer that. Okay. Anybody who's stimulated to think about the problem has a chance of improving things. If it's just play it safe and get more of the same, we, we, we undermine our own desires to have things better. Well, Kenneth, very good. I'm, I'm glad your voice is out there and you're talking about these things because, uh, you know, the other side of it, again, is just a wall of the same same voices, same dogma. So thank that's you for coming culture, on the podcast. That's how culture it always is. It's resistance by the establishment to change and push from the newcomers for change. And we hope we get some of the latter right now. You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials or even starting to appear on shelves or by prescription or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you.